0: Talking benefits, 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 talking, 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 benefits.
1: You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month we dive into retirement, health care, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held.
0: I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits. Well, hello, Talking Benefits listeners. This is Julie Stick. And for this episode, we wanted to highlight a topic that is timely for several reasons and might be a little confusing. And that is the topic of mental health and substance use disorder parity and benefits. Now, I realize that my saying that phrase may have caused some of you to wince a so little or make a face, but please, please don't stop listening. Yes, the notion of mental health parity has been around for. I don't know, something like at least 25 years, and it hasn't always been easy to understand, much less implement. And that is why we have invited today's guest onto the show to help us better understand this topic and Department of Labor enforcement in this area. Now, I know some of our listeners were able to attend the International Foundation's U.S. Annual Employee Benefits Conference a few weeks ago, either in person or virtually. And as a speaker at the conference, Stephanie Patrick dazzled us with her knowledge of this topic. So we asked her to join us in an exclusive Talking Benefits interview to help us and all of you better understand this topic as well. So Stephanie, welcome to uh, Talking Benefits and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Julie, and what a lovely introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Well, as a, a quick background on Stephanie, she is a senior consulting actuary for Horizon Actuarial Services, LLC, and she's based in their Atlanta, Georgia office. She consults primarily on the design, financing, and administration concerns for multi employer health and welfare programs. In addition to performing actuarial projections for a wide variety of health and welfare plans, she consults on plan design and eligibility strategy, vendor management and compliance with respect to benefit legislation and employee communications. So I think we have the right person here to talk to us today about mental health parity. So let us get started. Stephanie, can you please tell us the overall goal of mental health parity and why was legislation first enacted 25 years ago and why is it so important? Yeah, absolutely. So first,
2: Really, the goal of mental health parity was to address some of the concerns that lingered in the government, in the marketplace about restrictions in mental health and later substance abuse or substance use disorder coverage compared to what was being provided Uh, to medical plans. And really, the focus was on employer-sponsored health plans. Um, However, the the law extends past that at this point. And really, I think this was acknowledgement by the government that, look, mental health is important. And really, a focus on trying to improve the benefits there was the goal of this mental health parity laws that have been passed over the years.
0: So in a nutshell, how has the legislation morphed since it was passed originally in 1996? And where is it today?
2: Oh, it's kind of a long road, really. Uh, So we have some things that happened before 1996, but we're going to start there because that was when the big steps happened. Starting in 1996, we saw the Mental Health Parity Act passed. It really only addressed mental health coverage not substance use disorder coverage at all and it addressed the biggest items of concern at the time aggregate lifetime limits and annual dollar limits there were quite a lot of loopholes in this law that folks could utilize though and and there were waivers actually uh, to the law as it was implemented at the time so we're going to fast forward a few years And we get to 2008 and 2008 saw an expansion and addition to this law. And now we have the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. And this is really the law when people talk about mental health parity, they're usually referencing this 2008 version of the law as opposed to the 1996 version, because here we have not only mental health gets covered, but we have substance use disorder benefits being added into uh, the law. And now, instead of just aggregate and lifetime limits being addressed, this law covered financial requirements, quantitative treatment limits, non-quantitative treatment limits, and a lot of the loopholes that existed in the 1996 law were now closed. So there was a real move from this law to a place of um, something that was a lot more equal benefits for mental health and substance use disorder as compared to a medical and surgical benefits. Fast forward a few years, we saw the Affordable Care Act passed. And one of the places that this impacted mental health and substance use disorder benefits is that it actually mandated coverage for the first time for certain kinds of plans by labeling, officially labeling mental health and substance use disorder benefits as essential health benefits. So another step forward in kind of acknowledging the importance of mental health benefits came with that Affordable Care Act. And then we're gonna fast forward a little more, and now we've got this year, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, This, this act is really more of a documentation requirement, but it requires that plans that do cover mental health and substance abuse disorder benefits, that they have a comparative analysis document that really outlines exactly how their non-quantitative treatment limits compare between medical and mental health benefits.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. That was a long process, but thank you for explaining all the steps there. So what are the rules? Now, I know there are three main requirements and areas for purity. So can you please explain those for us? Absolutely. So the official line
2: here is that if a plan provides medical and surgical benefits and also provides mental health and substance use disorder benefits, the plan can't apply any financial requirements or treatment limits to the mental health side in any classification of benefits that's more restrictive than the predominant financial requirement or treatment limit that applies to the medical surgical side. Now that's a mouthful, right? (laughs) So when you break it down, there are three categories of limitations that the law focuses on. The Mm -hmm. first are financial requirements. And these are really what you would consider benefit designs components, things like deductibles, co copayments, insurance out-of-pocket maximums, kind of your basic benefit design components. Then we have treatment limits and they break treatment limits into two different categories. One are quantitative treatment limits. And this is really a limit on frequency. So things like visit limits, limits on your days of coverage or any kind of waiting period, anything that's got kind of a number associated as a limit. The second category of treatment limits are a lot softer and a lot less clear. Uh, These are non-quantitative treatment limits. And this is really anything that limits benefits that's non-numeric. That's a pretty vague description. So some examples would be things like medical necessity review, how you design your formulary for your prescription drug programs how are providers allowed into your medical network and your mental health network? And how are those providers paid? The rules that set up the whole design of your plan, payment rules, network access rules, utilization management program rules, all of them kind of fall in this very broad, but somewhat vague category of non-quantitative treatment limits. And the reason that we kind of see a little bit of difficulty in complying with some of the new laws is the vagueness of this NQTL definition. It it really is a a little bit of a complicated definition to pinpoint
0: down. Mm -hmm. You're right, The, the quantitative, it's much easier to understand, right? So... Okay. Now it feels like any given plan may have quite a few different financial requirements and treatment limits for different kinds of benefits. So are all of these assessed together? No, actually the law
2: requires that you break these into certain categories and allows you to break them kind of further, even after the baseline. So the law says you have to look at, the, at these in six different categories specifically, inpatient, in-network, inpatient out-of-network, outpatient in-network, outpatient out-of-network, emergency room care, and prescription drugs. Those are the six categories that the law defines, and you have to look at parity specifically and independently in each category. Now, the law does allow you to break them up a little more. You can, if you have a preferred in-network Vendor, which some plans do, they have three tiers out of network, preferred in network, and non preferred in network. Then you're allowed to break them up a bit more for that. And you can take the outpatient pieces and break them into office visit and non office visit. However, you can't break them any further than that. So you can't say, I'm going to assess specialty office visits differently than primary care office visits. As far as you can break them is only this office visit, non office visit component. One thing to keep in mind here is when we're looking at each category independently, parity for the law doesn't really mean that the benefits are exactly the same. You can have the benefits be exactly the same and actually still not meet the parity requirements. It's really, I've heard some some folks call it super parity, better than parity in a lot of cases. Within any given category for your financial requirements and your quantitative treatment limits, any type of limitation that you apply has to apply to substantially all of your medical surgical benefits in that category. And the law defines that as two thirds. That just gets you over the hurdle of being able to apply a limit at all. So a deductible, for example, if you don't apply a deductible to two thirds of a category, then you can't apply the deductible to mental health at all. Picking which level of deductible or copay or coinsurance, you have to use what we call the predominant role. So within that category on the medical side, what's the predominant copay? That's the maximum copay that you could apply on the mental health side. And predominant really looks at the maximum of, you know, at least a half of the benefits that have that type of limitation. So there's kind of a lot of math, which is why, you know, as an actuary, I really enjoy this particular kind of analysis, because even though we are talking about legal compliance, um, there's quite a lot of calculations involved to get to the point where you can determine what exactly you are allowed to provide as, as benefit limits. That was all related to the financial Um, Mm -hmm. requirements and the quantitative treatment limits, the NQTLs or non-quantitative treatment limits are a little different because they don't have this numeric by nature. They don't have any numbers involved. So really the process there just looks at whether the processes that you apply on those non-quantitative treatment limit side to mental health are really they have to be similar. They have to be applied in the same way as what's applied on the medical side. Um, and you can't have any in QTLs that are only for mental health. Anything that applies to mental health also has to apply to medical. And really importantly, and the thing that has kind of become a stumbling block for some plans, NQTLs have to be assessed not only as written, but also in process. So if there's something that you're doing in practice that's a little different than what's actually written in your SPD or a little more thorough than what's written in your SPD or plan document, that also has to become part
0: of the NQTL analysis. All right. Well, so this is a lot and a little, it's a little confusing. So can you share an example or two of how these rules might apply and impact a plan? Yeah, absolutely.
2: So first most of the plans that we work with and probably most of the folks listening, mental health parity rules aren't new. They've been around for a while. And for most plans when mental health parity was first passed and a lot of the, the rules that I was kind of referencing earlier on the financial side, those were addressed early on after the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act was passed. So really early on, we saw a lot of plans that removed limits that applied only to mental health previously, or they aligned their copays and co-insurances to the medical side. That was that was really what we kind of saw when the initial law was passed. Now the recent legislation has been focused on the NQTL piece, and right now plans really have a focus on that area of compliance. Now the DOL has for many years been performing mental health parity audits and there's reports that they put out every year on their findings. You can, you know, look them up and read them for yourself, but what they found in their audits and what they as issues in their audits include the same kind of things you would probably expect them to be looking for in some ways. They note inappropriate financial requirements on mental health office visits. So a copay that's higher than it is for medical, for example. They note waiting periods that are too long on mental health or annual limits on the number of visits for mental health that don't apply on the medical side. All the things that would be kind of standard and you would say, yep, we need to make sure our plan complies there. But there's also some things that are a little more nuanced that they have called out and have already begun auditing. Things like differences in the NQTL processes for medical necessity review between mental health and substance abuse and treatment for uh, the autism spectrum disorder cases, ABA therapy, for example. All of that has been cited in, in the DOL's reviews of current plans. Prior authorization differences between mental health and medical and clinical review differences between those two, they have all kind of been cited recently. So it's really thorough. The review process is very thorough and it calls out quite a lot. So. Your question was uh, a few ways these rules could impact the plans. And really, it's, there's a lot there, a
0: lot of options. Okay. Thanks, Stephanie. We're going to take a quick break. International Foundation e-learning courses deliver top-quality instruction in a convenient, self-paced format. Developed by industry experts, each online course provides a one-of-a-kind learning experience, allowing you to learn whenever and wherever fits your schedule. And starting November 26th through the end of the year, get 25% off when you purchase any e-learning courses and you'll get 180 days to complete them. Visit ifebp.org slash e-learning to learn more about the 35 courses we offer And enter code SAVE25 at checkout to take advantage of this great deal. And we're back. So, Stephanie, now what can you tell our listeners as new as of November 2021 that employers and plan sponsors should know about? It probably circles around the CAA.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The comparative analysis of NQTLs was included in the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was recently passed. This really isn't a change in what plans have to cover, but it does add documentation requirements for the plan. So plans should be able to provide a comparative analysis of NQTLs to the Department of Labor upon request. And the deadline for that to have been completed for plans was February 10th of this year. So we're already passed by quite quite a number of months. And I know that this is a bit of a, a big lift for many plans, but the Department of Labor really is taking these rules quite seriously. Uh, we've already heard about a number of requests that are being made for these comparative analysis. And Plans that don't have them or that don't have the full documentation available, they're really being asked to turn around additional documentation and to do corrective action really, really quickly, really short timeframes for corrective action that we're seeing on the request that we've uh, heard about at this point. So, overall, it seems like there's a, a much
0: bigger focus right now on mental health parity compliance. Well, that that segues into my next question about um, how is the DOL enforcing uh, the purity law and the rules? Well, one of the requirements that the Consolidated Appropriations Act
2: put in is that the DOL had to request at least twenty of these NQTL comparative analyses per year. Oh. Uh, and it may be that that's the minimum. Remember, it may be that they're requesting more, and there are some situations that require them to send a request in. Things like if the DOL learns about a possible violation or if there's a complaint or an allegation that's filed with them, then that triggers a requirement for them uh, to request this document. CMS also has to request 20 different in QTL comparative analysis from from governmental plans and state insurance programs. So this is spanning the width of both employer-sponsored plans and also governmental plans.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, so what happens if the DOL does find parity violations? So if they
2: find that parity has been violated, and that includes not being able to provide your NQTL comparative analysis, since that is now part of the parity rules, the plan technically has 45 days to take corrective action. After that 45 days, if the DOL finds the plan is still in violation, the plan has to actually notify the enrolled participants about noncompliance within seven days. So this is now notices out to your members um, that you're noncompliant. Also, the DOL names violators in an annual report, so that'll be published out for all of time. And finally, there is this this penalty. The DOL has the right to work with the IRS to assess civil penalties of up
0: to $100 a day. So there's some real teeth. They're serious about this. Absolutely. So now you're an actuary, and we know that you love data. So is it possible for plans to use their mental health claims data to evaluate parity and possibly even improve the coverage that they offer? Yes, yes. And of course, I love data. So anytime I get
2: to kind of talk about the numbers, that's my favorite part. Uh, (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Plans should be using their data. The self-compliance tool, that was published by the Department of Labor, sets out a methodology for using claims data to evaluate a plan's compliance in all areas. And that includes the financial restrictions and the QTLs. Those pieces, data is really key to doing the analysis. Um, So I think that you absolutely need data and some actuaries, get some on board to help you do this analysis. And one thing I have to mention, because it's, it's pretty interesting from a mathematical standpoint, that's the stuff that we love. Compliance doesn't always mean the same benefits. You know, I mentioned earlier this concept of super compliance, but you could easily have some benefits that were designed so the medical benefit and the mental health benefit were the same, but you still may not be in compliance. For example, if you had two office visit co-pays, one for specialists and one for primary care providers... If, not, if neither of those copays accounted for two thirds of the claim dollars in those categories that I was kind of talking about earlier in your office visit outpatient category, then you're not allowed to offer either copay. So even though you're offering the same thing on medical, there is a criteria that you have to meet in order to be able to provide any limitations of any kind, including benefit design coverage on the mental health side.
0: Okay, now that's really fascinating. Yeah, pretty interesting, right? It is, it is. So talking about claims data, um, now we've talked on our podcast before about the impact that the pandemic has had on mental health. And earlier this year, the International Foundation conducted a survey um, at the roughly one year mark of the pandemic. We did this back in May of 2021. And we found that among our 200 respondents to the survey in the United States, 48% reported a slight increase in the number of mental health claims uh, that were um, generated during the period of 2020 to 2021, and 15% reported a significant increase. So the first was slight and 15% significant. So Stephanie, can you share any, um, whatever you've been seeing in utilization of mental health and substance use disorder coverages? Sure. Yeah. Um, So one thing I have to note that people
2: are saying that they need mental health benefits more during the pandemic, for sure. There was a recent study I was looking at on the, on adolescents, actually in Australia. Remember, this is a worldwide pandemic we're talking about. And that particular study, they asked these adolescents, how do you feel physically? And how do you feel mentally? What's your change physically and mentally? And, you know, the change physically, there were a few, about 10% that said they feel a lot worse physically, but a much bigger percentage, well over 30, close to 40% said on the mental health side that they feel a lot worse mentally and you know even in the us i know the kaiser family foundation recently did a study where they they looked at the average share of adults that were reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression and they compared data from early 2019 to data from january of 2021 And the percentage of folks that were experiencing anxiety or depression jumped from 11% back in 2019 to over 40% in 2021. So regardless of what the claims data says, I think there's a need that Mm -hmm. continues to be heightened on mental health. And really the impact on claims The study you referenced is great, but I think it's probably even deflated a little bit because we're just seeing such a need for care. People can't access care as much as they would really like to. In fact, the, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, did a survey on the National Council for Behavioral Health recently and that particular survey showed that 27% of behavioral health care providers had laid off employees recently, 35% had reduced hours, and 45% had closed programs, uh, outreach programs for people. So, you know, there is, I think, an uptick in claims. And also an even higher uptick in demand than really what the market can even accommodate. So we're seeing an uptick in claims,
0: but I think there could be more if the market could supply uh, enough care. I know we're hearing anecdotally about long, long wait times, right, and which is so wait times are dreadful anyway, but in the in the mental health arena, you you need the care now right and so so challenging for the person affected and their family members watching them go through this and um, so All of this, the shortage of mental health care providers, it of course impacts our employees and their families, but it also impacts employers and their plans as well. So do you have any ideas on how employers can can help their employees in this area?
2: Oh, this is difficult. This is not an easy solution. I wish I had a good silver bullet for you. Um, A few things that employers could think about If you don't already have an employee assistance or member assistance program, that may be one way to help members find the care they need to kind of navigate the system. Uh, Also... One of the things we've seen a big uptick in claims on has been virtual care, telehealth visits for behavioral health. So if your plan doesn't cover virtual visits today, uh, that would be something that that could be considered is is adding that coverage for telehealth benefits for mental health and substance use disorder uh, into the plan. And if you do cover them, making sure folks know how to access them and that they are available Um, because we have seen quite an uptick in um, participants using virtual care for behavioral health. Finally, if, you know, if it's available, if it's possible, having some flexibility to allow participants to get to the visits when they can schedule them because in-person has been so difficult to schedule. So any flexibility on, on the clock uh, that could be offered to get people to care when they need it. I think that could be an option in some cases. In the end, I think we're just all going to have to work together through all the new legislative changes, the new market environment, and everything just to do the best we can to support the people who need care in this area because it's, it's really important and I think it's really
0: worth the effort. Yeah, it really is. It really is. We've been um, we've focused a lot on on this topic over the last couple of years on the on the podcast, and um, the the struggles are are real. And uh, we we were finding in our survey work as well that employers uh, were adding telehealth for for mental health. That is something they were doing during the pandemic. And then we asked if these any benefit changes they made during the pandemic were going to be permanent. And that was one that a lot of employers were saying they were going to implement that and keep that um, in their plan moving forward because it's worked. They've seen success with it and seen utilization. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This uh, will wrap up this month's episode. We really appreciate you joining us and, and sharing your insights with us. Thank you. I was so happy to be here. So before we wrap up, I want to give a listener shout out to Michelle Kessler, who also presented at the Foundation's recent U.S. Annual Conference. Michelle has been a listener to our podcast for a while, and she was kind enough to spread the word about Talking Benefits to the attendees at her session. So we wanted to say thank you, Michelle. Um, And on behalf of my co-hosts, Ann Patterson and Justin Health, thank you all for listening. And Talking Benefits will be back in your podcast feeds next month.
1: If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Anne Patterson, and me, Justin Help. Produced by Rose Pleva and Stacey Van Alstein, and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2021 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. I felt
2: babbly
0: at one point, but I can't remember what point it is. So I didn't hear anything that sounded babbly.
2: Okay. Yeah, I mean you were pretty short succinct to the point and yeah. no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> <laughs>